Hello and welcome to episode 18 of the Shadow Sex Cybersecurity Podcast. I am Nima Mihanyar, and I only possess one half of the access token that is required to access this episode. The other half is actually held in escrow by my partner in crime, Jorge Lamarca. Password accepted. Access granted. You will now be accessing this episode in T minus 20 seconds. Enjoy and remember. Not every geek with a Commodore 64 can hack into NASA. episode of the Shadow Sex Cybersecurity Podcast. The music you were just listening to is from Dualcore and you can find them at twitter.com forward slash Dualcore Music. We hope you're doing well and you're joining myself and my illustrious colleague Jorge. Hey Jorge, how are you doing? Good, could be better, could be playing Starcraft or something. You could be laying on a beach, relaxing, sipping motais and watching the surf. Who, who actually likes doing that? In, in, in all seriousness, who actually likes doing that? That sounds, that sounds fun for 12 minutes. And then you get hungry and you order something overpriced and then you have that and then it's boring altogether. I mean, to be honest, I do love making podcasts with you 100%, but I'll still try it out as well. I mean, it wouldn't be too bad. <laughs> that would be nice. <laughs> Thank God I have Spanish beer. Oh, Spanish beer is always good beer. Some people might disagree, especially the Belgians, but that is subjective. No, no, no. I'm not, I'm not saying anything. I, I have not rendered an opinion about the beer. I've just said I have Spanish beer. That's all I've said. All the hate, it just emanates from people. I, I'm just saying, hey, I'm having Spanish beer. Now watch the, all the Twitter, Twitter comments flow in now. <laughs> so before we kick it off, I'm going to quickly give our standard disclaimer, which is obviously that the views and opinions that Jorge and I share on this episode are our own and do not reflect those of our employers, current or previous, or any groups or organizations that we are associated with. So Jorge and I obviously are hoping that you guys are all doing really well and keeping safe. We see the light at the end of the tunnel of this COVID hell that we have, which is obviously the vaccines coming down the pipeline. So hopefully we'll get that soon and then we can return back to what the new normal will be with at least being able to fly more freely without having your nose violated repeatedly. But for this week's episode, we have a number of interesting stories that we're going to be covering. And the first one that we're going to be discussing, you've all heard of the very famous and well-known Nigerian prince scam. But one thing you may not have heard of is the Ori Ori scam, which is actually regionally specific to Japan. Not to brag, yeah, not to brag, but I've had several exchanges with the Nigerian prince. Like him and I are just, you know, but. Oh, wow. You guys must be like BFFs. I like it. <laughs> he loves to write email. I don't know what's, what's with him. And, and he seems to not only be pen-palling with me. 
I, I suspect I'm, I'm I'm in a bit of a her moment. You know, her like the movie her. Oh, yeah. oh my god, who else is this prince talking to? Nice sweeping you off your feet. Oh my god, special. <laughs> yeah. He promises he'll be over and and he'll he'll give me back some stuff that he borrowed. That's okay. Oh, nice. <laughs> So you all know, obviously, with the Nigerian prince scam, this is where someone obviously claims to be the prince and they obviously need to use your bank account details to store their royal loot that they've managed to plunder or save or whatever they say. But in this case, with the Oriori scam, this is actually a very well-known scam to Japan and actually preys on Japan's social, family and professional values that Japan is very famous for because, of course, their values around those three key areas is very strong. So what happens with this scam is apparently crooks actually call senior citizens on the phone and they actually say, Ori Ori which is actually where the name of the scam actually originates from and what it actually translates to in Japanese is it's me. And the plan is that the target that they are obviously calling will mistake the scammer for someone they know like a son or grandson. And if they say something like, who is this? Then the scammer will actually employ guilt tactics saying, for example, what? It's me. You recognize my voice, don't you? So it's kind of like playing the vulnerable person's family values and feeling ashamed. And the end goal is to obviously coerce the target to actually send the money. And they do this by telling them that they obviously need some help from them. And they make up a story about, for example, losing a briefcase with company money in it. And the whole objective of it is just to basically barrage them with false information so they don't have any time to realize how unrealistic the situation that they currently are in actually is. And this leads to the con artist saying that they won't be able to actually pick up the money in person from the relative. But they say that a co-worker who actually obviously, as you can imagine, is actually just a criminal accomplice will meet them somewhere and actually pick up the money from them. Or they also tell the target, this is my bank account details, please transfer the money into there. And actually, this type of attack is actually very well known in Japan. And just having a quick look on popular news sites, you can actually find articles on this subject going all the way back to 2003. So obviously, this is a really big issue that actually targets Japan's strong sense of family and social values. And they say that every year, the seniors are actually defrauded out of hundreds of thousands of euros. Uh, but now the government is trying to fight back by actually allowing law-abiding citizens to actually try to make money on it as well. So it's like a nice little twist. So they've started a small initiative in a region as a test. And the objective is that if anyone receives one of these messages from a scammer, then what they should do is notify the police of the actual uh, contact details of the scammer and if they work with the police to try and actually apprehend the scammer so they play along with it until the actual meetup or the ob obtaining the bank account details and if their cooperation helps to identify the scammer then they can actually earn some good bit of change which is actually around 10,000 yen which actually I believe is actually a good a good amount of reward to help with this so 
hopefully if this uh, scheme actually is successful then they'll be able to roll it out into more areas and actually hopefully it will deter some of these criminals from actually targeting the more vulnerable of the society over there here's me thinking that will not prosper so right now it's it's only available in a specific territory right so that particular police force in a particular territory is piloting the approach but at the same time yeah, that this doesn't seem like the kind of thing that will become commonplace and therefore have the desired effect. We'll see. I agree. I, a big part of me probably agrees upon that. But fingers crossed and hopefully the optimistic side of, of this podcast is going to hope that it gets better. But the truth is you're probably right. But uh, let's see. Are, are you self-proclaiming as the optimistic one? No, no, no. The, the optimistic side of, of both of our group together as well. <laughs> Oh, I see. I see. We don't have a Rick and Morty scenario where you are like optimistic. Oh, no, definitely not. I see. That's good. We are one unit. That's good. Too. One combat unit. One Terran army. <laughs> then we're going to actually talk about another topic, which obviously everyone is probably very, very much well aware of because of the fact that it's been making so many headlines. And it also links very well to a topic that we've discussed numerous times on other episodes which is obviously around infrastructure hacks and how vulnerable infrastructure can be to cyber attacks and the actual impact that a successful one could potentially result in and we've actually seen that impact happen from the colonial pipeline attack that happened around a week ago against the US's most important oil pipelines which was servicing the southeast coast of the United States and so what happened was apparently on May 7th just as a very brief summary Colonial actually suffered a cyber attack on their IT infrastructure which initial reports indicated was their HR system but out of an abundance of caution they actually shut down all of their IT operations, which also involved the actual pipeline itself. Now, the pipeline itself was not at immediate risk at the time, but they shut it down anyway as a preemptive move to help them during the cleanup operation. Now, some of the interesting things that we heard about this story indicated that initially Colonial actually said that they were not going to engage or pay the ransomware but recent reports actually have come out to say in the Wall Street Journal that Colonial actually did engage the uh, the malicious actors and did pay the 5 million ransom that was actually being demanded but apparently the decryption key was so slow that they ended up going and restoring from backup anyway which is actually quite uh, hilarious in that situation but another interesting uh, fact from this attack was the uh, ramifications that had on the dark side ransomware group because obviously as you know dark side actually operates as a ransomware as a service in which they have affiliates uh, who work with them and it is their responsibility to actually infect and gain access into corporate networks and DarkSide provides them with the ransomware to actually deploy and they take a certain percentage of their earnings from the affiliate. But what's interesting is that DarkSide was actually one of the groups which were more on the 
ethical side of the cybercrime underworld in which they actually literally had an ethics page on their dark website which specifically listed the type of organizations that their affiliates were prohibited from attacking and these actually included hospitals nursing homes any organizations that participated in COVID-19 production and education institutes such as schools and universities dude dude listen I smell an HBO script in here. There's <laughs> Did, something oh, here. I prop. I, I, I'm 100%. telling you. 100%. They, dude, they had a code. Exactly. Okay? They had a Seriously. code. This is, we need to unravel this. This is much more interesting than the story itself. This, you do this part, that, actually, right? I do agree, is much more interesting. Because what happened was that the actual dark side did say that they don't want obviously any government organizations impacted because the whole objective was for them to avoid government scrutiny and actually coming down the wrong side of governments because of course they don't mind targeting and holding to ransom private organizations but they obviously have some desire to stay at least at arm's length from governments because of the power that they could bring down on them. And that's exactly what happened here. Because following the attack, the group itself actually posted an official statement and they actually described themselves as being apolitical and that they were not aware that Colonia was being targeted by one of their affiliates. And they actually said, and now this is actually the, the surprising thing, is that from today, we are introducing moderation to check each company that our partners want to encrypt to avoid social consequences in the future. Now at the time when they actually posted that, they probably were hoping that this would be enough to appease the US government. But of course, that cat had already left the bag. And what happened very shortly afterwards, President Biden actually went on TV and said that they are actually now working to identify and target those responsible. And reports indicate that very shortly after he made that statement, Darkseid actually lost control of their public infrastructure assets, uh, which is what they said in their own official statement. And also all of the money from their crypto wallet was actually seized and transferred out and they have officially now suspended all operations pending further notice and their official statement actually told their affiliates to be careful because at this point it is believed that obviously the US government is believed to have obtained some of their servers with some of the data on there so with that they may be able to actually identify some of these affiliates. And on top of that, in terms of more ramifications, the other ransomware group, ReEvil, also posted a official statement and they have now officially introduced new restrictions on their affiliates and what they can target and hold for ransom. And it's actually important to note that ReEvil, before this event, didn't have any a type of ethics page or any type of restrictions but obviously and now that they've seen the impact to their quote-unquote cousin they want to avoid that from happening to them as well so now they say that their affiliates will not be allowed to go after companies in what they call the social sector so that includes healthcare and education and any government sectors and affiliates would have to get permission 
before they can actually infect the victim. So it's clear that this actual event and the actions by the US government have actually shaken up the ransomware community quite a lot to the point where now affiliates actually have to get permission before they're actually allowed to proceed any further with their attacks, which is actually very interesting to see. So it'd be interesting to see how this is actually going to evolve even more and if the US is gonna take any more action on this. Then the next topic that we're gonna have, this one actually is related to the iOS 14.5 adoption. So if you remember, iOS 14.5 is the new update that Apple released, which is the one that Facebook is obviously getting their knickers in a twist about. And it's the one that is introducing more stringent privacy controls and forcing applications to request permission from users before they're able to actually quote unquote track them. So we've actually seen a graph that was actually released that showed daily adoption rates for iOS 14.5. And obviously from the day that it was actually released, you can see that the rate was, was very low. But as the time has progressed, we have noticed that it has slightly started to increase which is actually quite interesting, not by significantly, maybe one or two percentage points, but at the same time in the iOS ecosystem, when you're talking about the number of users that Apple has, one or 2% could actually represent a good significant number of users, like maybe in the hundreds of thousands range. And obviously this increase could be seen as some users who are not that concerned with the actual uh, privacy aspect of it. Or it could be that uh, they're getting tired of all the time being bombarded by these notifications. So they just maybe by default just say yes, yes, yes. I'll accept it, that's fine. Or of course, yeah, as more and more people are also adopting iOS 14.5, the user base may be increasing and more of those people may obviously be actually accepting some apps to actually track them in order to help support the business model of some of their more favorite applications. I think this all has to, something's got to give when it comes to monetization and I think the Apple model has proven to be a kind of a working model for many businesses. And I think they should not necessarily be more lenient in terms of the fees, but for sure they need to consider being more lenient in terms of side channels for funding, specifically for certain types of applications like games and so on. Because at the end of the day, you can't really, you know, stifle those business models for no real reason. Uh, in terms of tracking, I think my, my girlfriend showed me this GIF really funny one you know the tom hanks gif i think it's a booba gump scene it's just tom tom hanks in a fishing boat like kind of waving in a very naive way it's a typical gif for naivety like a meme so people accepting the tracking conditions for you know ios applications <laughs> and it's tom hanks is waving like, oh, hello <laughs> no no wonder no wonder like put that way i think very few people are going to accept but at the end of the day after reading extensively in the topic, I, I don't have a very compelling answer to why Apple might be doing this aside from it's time. It, it was a long, long time coming. People value privacy exponentially more than say 10 years ago. And Apple wants to capitalize on that. Right? Did you also hear recently that Apple have announced that they're going to start advertising in the iOS store? 
So I think we mentioned that in a previous podcast. I'm not sure, but that could be something quite interesting as well. Because, of course, one thing that some of the news outlets are mentioning is that they're trying to reduce and get more control of. But, of course, Apple themselves still have access to all of the data because they are obviously a first party within the actual uh, ecosystem. So it's quite interesting that in on top of the announcement of iOS 14.5 release, they also announced that they are going to start as well showing more ads within the App Store and are actually soliciting advertisers to, to come into their ecosystem as well. So it's interesting to see. But I think definitely that this is part of a much bigger strategy and game that Apple is playing. But it will be interesting to see what the end result is going to be. So do, do you think there's an agenda that includes a significant helping of cannibalizing Facebook? <laughs> oh, minute 26. I made it I 26 mean, minutes. It's, it's possible that they do want to take a large chunk. I don't want to support the cannibalization of any sort of company, organization or person. But at the same time, it's a little bit hard to be sympathetic when the one being cannibalized is Facebook and the bad press that they've got. It's hard to feel bad for them if their business model is going to start getting eaten away. But at the same time, obviously, you don't want Apple to become this massive monopoly, this unstoppable juggernaut. So obviously, you want to be some checks and bounds and controls on their growth. But it'll be but it'll be interesting to see how it develops. And for the time being, they do certainly seem to be on the side of the consumer and empowering users to have more control over their data and also the ability for applications to track them. Yeah, so one thing that I wanted to to kind of wrap the story with is I wonder if I could speak to somebody in 20 years, I've asked many things. And one of the things, maybe the second day over a beer after dinner, not necessarily, you know, top of the list is... In terms of legislation, what is the right balance? Because clearly right now we don't have the right balance. And you were mentioning checks and balances and controls. And then the idea of government or any other overarching entity telling a company, however big and powerful, what they can and cannot do in their own ecosystem within applicable law is a bit weird, right? So all of this antitrust, of course, those are predicated on, you know, perceived breach of legislation. But... If there weren't edge cases, there wouldn't be a debate. And I think uh, something I like a lot about the free software ecosystem is the fact that you have interoperable, extensible environments where there is the right degree of standardization where things work with one another. In the case of Apple, of course, it's a big monolithic empire in which you either buy into the whole premise or you are kind of discomforted out of it. Like using AirPods with an Android device, I do it every day. It's not comfortable. It's not good, right? So yeah, I I think we will converge in a sane model. I think the you know good patterns and architecture realities will prevail. And the Apple case study is a really, really interesting, and I believe it's going to be a pivotal one, how the App Store evolves over time. Exactly. And you can bet your ass that Google is going to definitely closely watch how it evolves and what happens, because any outcome that Apple has, you can be sure a similar one will follow for Google. And just going obviously to your comment in regards to, to the control and things like this, I mean... 
I think we've always mentioned in previous episodes, obviously, Apple has created a good ecosystem. They obviously own the the app store and the infrastructure. And obviously, by that right, they have the right to set their own rules and whatever. But no one really wants full government control to come down on these companies. Because in the past, when we've had a government interventions, it hasn't gone very well with a lot of people, I believe, making the clipper chip as a prime example of that so that was obviously an initiative by the government years ago in order to try to fight copyright abuse but very quickly the clipper chip which was actually a hardware device that was actually placed was actually circumvented uh, quite easily by a lot of pirates and so in the end the only people that really got hurt by it were legitimate users who just basically wanted to be able to take the content that they actually paid for and be able to use it on on different devices but they were very restricted from doing that and so we do want some controls but we don't want there to be too much government oversight on it because they haven't had really great track records on that and and, and there's plenty of precedent of ridiculous you know, overextensions in the interest of protecting intellectual property by private companies as well, right? I remember the example of, as a child, for example, I never got introduced to StarCraft. I got introduced to Common and Conquer. So, of course, I had to do that. And I'm sorry, if I could go back, I would actually teach my younger self in a way of StarCraft. But at any, at any rate, you know, every conversation devolves into StarCraft. What the hell is that? At any rate, <laughs> at any rate, yeah. Um, <clears throat> You know what? I lost my trail of thought because I started talking about StarCraft. Oh, yeah. Common and Conquer 4. Yeah. Highly anticipated game. Uh, but it wouldn't work if you weren't online. How bull... Oh, for example, even today, most major consoles have locked in features for games you paid. Often, physical games you paid for if you're not online. So clearly, we are not in, in kind of a equilibrium of consumer rights versus corporate interests and we need to get there sooner rather than later i wonder if some of those governmental controls or laws could be more fundamental there's a lot of there's lots of talk about the initial premise of owning a computer and how debatable it is that you actually own a computer if you have something like an iphone nowadays that's a more philosophical debate but you get what i'm saying right instead of trying to regulate very specific business flows and business realities Maybe just ensuring that the user has a certain level of access to whatever commodity they purchased might be enough. So something way more basic. But again, I would need to ask that person 20 years in the future. That is also an informed person 20 years in the future. (laughs) Exactly. And if you do speak to him, then please, please do ask him what the lottery numbers are so that at least we can uh, profit from it. That's why I said I would ask day two after dinner. Like the, the first few questions are definitely going to be related to other things too. Like, should I buy a bunch of Monero? Will I be an idiot because I didn't buy a, bon- a bunch of Monero? You know? Exactly. That's a very good point. Well, which is the next Dogecoin that we need to know about? Dogecoin. Dodgy. Oh God, Dogecoin is such a sad story. Doge, Dogecoin is so dodgy. That's where it is. But there's a, isn't there a Dogecoin-esque variant or fork of Monero? I think it's oh, a wild I'm sure. coin. I'm sure. The thing definitely. is, there's, there's a technically very respectable coin that is also a Dogecoin, like a spiritual successor. And it's based on the Monero 
blockchain as well. Nice. Yeah, I, th- I think it's called Wowcoin or something like that. Fantastic. <laughs> but as he was saying, going on to our next subject as well, Firefox recently announced that they have actually finally introduced site isolation into Firefox. Now, this is obviously something that Google has had now for a number of years. And I think that obviously Firefox seeing the success that Google has had with it, it was just natural that they were going to follow suit with this. But of course, site isolation is not something easy to be able to implement. And both Google and Firefox have taken actually around two years to be able to implement this. So what this is basically involves is now every tab you have in Firefox is going to be running its own Windows process separately. So one of the advantages of that is obviously if you ever do have some issue happening in one of your tabs and that tab crashes, then at least it won't bring down your entire Firefox session with all your other tabs running, which is obviously a good thing. And this is something that Chrome has had for a little while, yeah? And and it's also really relevant to the discussion we had in ShadowSec 16 about WebAssembly and what's to come, right? So the more process level sandboxing we have at a native layer, the better. By the way, the, the coin is called Wow Nero. Wow, Wow Nero, I like it. And there's a bunch of memes. There, there's a meme with uh, a policeman kind of patting down a dog in a, in a photo and the dog has like dodge the dodge face and the and the dodge is saying i'm telling you officer i have no wow <laughs> <laughs> so so good that's a classic oh my god i love it we'll put that in the show notes and, then, and we're going to keep an eye out on uh, elon musk's twitter to see if he starts pimping that coin out and if he does that's normally a sign just to jump on that as well and also talking about uh, cryptocurrencies, Ethereum also recently announced that they are actually going to release a new update to their blockchain and technology, which is going to see their power usage supposedly drop by up to 99%. So currently Ethereum takes up the equivalent power usage of a small country slash large city. But they say that with the new update, that's going to actually get reduced to the equivalent of a village of 2,000 people. And so you have to imagine, obviously, with the recent announcements that, again, Elon Musk was making when he actually announced that Tesla would no longer be accepting uh, Bitcoin because of the environmental impact. And at the same time, announcing that they were looking for other cryptocurrencies, which had far less impact on the environment, that obviously this announcement very soon afterwards by Ethereum may be a way for them to be trying to court Elon Musk and Tesla in order for them to be able to accept Ethereum as a viable payment method. Because of course, if Tesla starts to accept them, then it may also have the same impact that it had on Bitcoin initially and give them a surge in popularity and price, which would be great for them. I think I'm almost sure of two things regarding this whole story. Yeah, One of them is the Elon Musk master of coin thing is a short-lived meme, for sure. Like no doubt in my mind that that, that, would, that will not be a thing for a long time. But something that I look forward to, and I have this, it's not a hunch really, because I think it's, it's kind of 
and inevitability, if that makes sense, is governments are going to surrender to this digital current, not digital currency, so cryptocurrency or, or kind of electronic currency, natively electronic currency, right, in a distributed architecture type thing. And they're going to want to play the same game. China has been, you know, piloting this for months at this point. So they're there already, right? So the, 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 the electronic yuan or the crypto yuan is already a thing. But I think many, many governments are going to follow suit and projects who took the whole resiliency against centralization, privacy from tracking and integrity, self-preservation thing very seriously are going to actually thrive. And the real race for capital movement and tracking and money laundering and so on is going to happen. So I, I think that the, the heat up that we had in 2017, 2018, 2019, and just recently is kind of just the beginning. I'm, I'm, I'm ever more convinced that this project that took, you know, the concept of... So the, 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 the tokens that actually have the goal of behaving as currency and that took all of those factors seriously are going to be in a really good place, in a much better place than ever. So things like being private, being trustworthy by design, being really scalable. So the, <laughs> this movement with Ethereum makes a lot of sense. And then being truly decentralized. I think those are actually going to be a hot commodity in, in the near future. I agree, definitely. And like you said, it's just a matter of time at this point right now for formal adoption of some type of cryptocurrency to actually be integrated into today's financial systems, because that is sort of the direction that organizations and some major financial institutions are now going into, because with the likes of Morgan Stanley, for example, as well, who have reportedly been already looking into how they can actually integrate crypto payments into their platforms and provide the service to their clients i think that's just the beginning with uh, the general adoption and the mainstream adoption of cryptocurrencies by all financial entities soon as well there's a podcast that lex friedman did recently with one entrepreneur that is actually dealing in trust networks right so of course they they do plenty of work with ethereum as a platform for agreements and so on, but they're also looking to roll pieces of infrastructure that can actually, you know, fulfill a check autonomously over time to release funds, fulfill an agreement, settle some sort of balance, etc. So th th they use a lot of cringe words, which I will obviously not repeat in this podcast. This podcast is a nice place for nice, pragmatic people. However, the concept of trusting an algorithm that has clear fulfillment criteria and clear requirements is something that I like very much. In fact, I think that a sensible government nowadays would be actually seeking to make itself ever more necessary by creating networks of trust that are kind of you know, zero trust, <laughs> if that makes sense, like in nature, as in no human intervention and the criteria are clear for the situations that actually lend themselves to it, if that makes sense. So that, that this whole trust as a service 
ecosystem that is evolving around tokens that deal with agreements and trust and contracts and so on is fascinating. I really, I'm really looking forward to the next few years and how over time certain things will become either unnecessary or the, the general public will realize that machines should be doing a whole lot more than they're doing right now. And it's just a matter of people trusting that they can. Exactly. So it's going to be good. Definitely. But also, if I remember correctly as well, Jorge, you actually are quite an adamant Linux user as well, because of course you have sort of in the past talked about how Windows is not fulfilling your needs and you more and more prefer obviously the Linux environment and the power it gives you as well. And I remember that, that you have at least used one password in the in the past. So you'll be happy to know that apparently now one password is now welcoming Linux into the fold. To be honest, I, I've, I only ever used LastPass. Like, my LastPass is crazy. I have, I have a fairly well-protected LastPass, and I use it for everything. I meant to use KeyPass, and I meant to use... So for one password, they put out a paper that was not bad. It was a good read, and it was very interesting to read, and I like that they exist. Uh, but to be honest, I'm just very happy with LastPass. I've used KeyPass a lot for professional reasons. So I've kept specific KeePass databases for specific purposes, just because they're completely unrelated to my personal life. But I found LastPass to strike that perfect product placement for me. And I've also gotten literally my partner, my mother, people like that to use it. And they're happy, like they're happy to use it, which is fantastic. That's really good. And I agree as well. I mean, I'm also quite an adamant LastPass user and I'm quite happy to pay for the, the premium uh, subscription for it as well because of the services that it gives. But it's good to know that there are other services such as 1Password and KeyPass as well, which are also two highly regarded services. So anyone actually looking for password managers, you do have a good choice right now as well between uh, LastPass, 1Password and KeyPass. And if you are a Linux user, then it's one more good news for you that 1Password is now native on Linux as well, which is always good. So it's always good that these platforms expand and make their offerings more available to a wider range of users. So that's great. I can already feel all of the terminal pass users just boiling the non-existent listeners that are used pass in Linux. Probably. Exactly. <laughs> so at this point now, I hope that you guys listening have enjoyed this episode. As you can clearly tell from what we have been discussing and how we have been discussing it, we are of course very experimental and obviously this is a new type of format that we are experimenting with with this show. So you might mistakenly assume that Jorge and I have just been smoking weed before we actually started recording and we were just super laid back or we just basically were drinking beer at this time, which for one of us is correct, but for the other it's not. But we do hope that you enjoy this format. And as always, we encourage you guys to reach out to us and provide us with your feedback on the Twitter or on the emails. We always look forward to any comments and feedback you guys provide us. And we're always happy to engage constructively on Twitter or in a flame war. It's okay, even when it's good. We just like the, the contact, it's okay. <laughs> so, uh, with that being said, I do hope that you guys are going to take care of yourselves. And from Jorge and I here at ShadowSec, we wish you guys a good day.
and a good week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Pack all the things. Yeah, well, good luck, man.